All right, so we are back at it. Now, I want to give you a quick reminder again that we do have our children's ministry online. There's great videos every single week, so you want to make sure you head that direction for your kids. And then also on the app, we have notes so you can follow along today and the text we are going to be in. And it is an important passage for every single one of us. In fact, the next two weeks are going to be really important for every single one of us. And so with that, I want to go ahead and pray for us this morning, get our hearts ready, and then jump right into it. So Jesus... I thank you that you love us so much, that you remind us of truths that sometimes our hearts don't want to receive. You remind us of things that you're saying, if you do this, it's going to give you life. If you do this, you're going to enjoy things more. If you do this, it's enriching. And then there's this thing in us that kind of wants to push back. But I pray that we wouldn't push back on life-giving things, but rather we would embrace those things into our life because you want us to have the fullest life possible. You want us to have abundant life. It's why you came. And so today, as you talk about life and where real life rests, I pray that we would welcome that, we would practice that, we would seek that because, frankly, we, we, we want your best for our lives. And so, Jesus, we look to you, we seek you, we need you, and we praise you in your good and perfect name. Amen. All right, well, today the topic is all about bones, bucks, Benjamins. We're talking about coinage, if you like Polly Shore. We're talking about moolah. We're talking about all the stuff that makes the world tick, that this glorious green stuff called money. And as Cindy Lauper told us, money changes everything, right? So we are talking about a subject that, frankly, is critical for all of us as human beings to look at and wrestle with. Because frankly, there is no greater rival to the almighty God than the almighty dollar. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knows it so much that he often speaks to the topic of money. He often confronts our misunderstandings of money. And in that, it's not that he's wanting to say money's bad, but what he's wanting to do is warn us of our affections as it relates to money. And so over the next two weeks in the Gospel of Luke, that's exactly the topic. And so we're just going to work through this a little bit and try to understand it and welcome his principles into our life because there is no person that is unaffected by this, even as Christians. In fact, it's amazing over the last few years how many evangelical leaders or ministries or organizations have been shown to have financial impropriety or handled money in the wrong way or did things that were not proper in relationship to this. Nobody is immune from the risks of this topic, and Jesus loves us enough to give us direction. And so I pray that we all welcome this, we take it in, and then from that we desire to live it out. Now, If you are not there yet, we are in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, and so you can open there or tap there, and we're going to be starting in verse 13 today, but before we do so, I just want to remind us that we're in a section of Luke where Jesus is throwing down a number of kind of bewares, right? So he's saying, beware of legalism, beware of externalism, beware of hypocrisy, and now he's going to talk about another beware, And I think it's one that is important for any culture that sort of builds itself on the concept or the values of economic freedom or security or prosperity. Like if that's the underpinning of a culture, which is very much our culture, a free market capitalistic society, then all the more Jesus's words are going to be important and they're going to speak into the realities that we all live in every single day. 
Now, as Jesus starts this, it actually starts by way of circumstance. So it's not like he sits down to teach on finances, but rather something occurs. And from that, it gives him the opportunity then to speak into this topic. And so it starts in verse 13. And it says, then someone called from the crowd and they said, teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, there are 11 occurrences, occurrences where somebody calls Jesus teacher. And of the 11, 10 for sure are coming from a religious leader or a Pharisee. And so there is this possibility that this person calling out from the crowd is just another one of the religious leaders that's trying to trap Jesus and him saying something that will be unpopular and the masses will turn against him. And we already saw at the end of the previous chapter that the Pharisees and religious leaders, they're pumping out every option they have to try to discredit Jesus. So if Jesus says something unpopular about money, that's probably going to turn the crowds against him and this would be a great opportunity. At the same time, there's a part of me that thinks that this someone that calls out from the crowd, this may actually be a problem they're facing. So in their society, what it was is uh, the oldest brother of a family became the executor when the father passed away. So whatever the estate was of the father, the oldest son has the job to divvy out to the younger brothers their portion of whatever was left over. So it seems in this case that this is a younger brother at odds with his oldest brother over what dad has left to the family, right? And so it's kind of like the little brother's like, man, the big brother, he pushes me around. He thinks he knows what I want and what I need. And he always tells me what to do. And then the big brother's probably, these little brothers are such a pain. They're so difficult. Like it's that family squabble that's going on. And so this guy is frustrated that his big brother is not giving him what he deserves. Now I'll tell you why this is interesting to me. In my, I don't know, three decades, I guess, of being a pastor, I have had to sit down many times with members of families that are at odds over a will and over an inheritance and over what was left to the kids or the grandkids or whatever else. And oftentimes when that happens, there's real frustration, there's real anger. And I would say the majority of the time, uh, the family sort of came apart and never really came back together. And it's strange because we would all say if we weren't in that circumstance, we'd be like, family shouldn't divide over money. Family shouldn't fight about inheritance. That's silly. But when a person finds himself in that space, suddenly there is this reality where they go like, no, I deserve that. Or no, that's mine. Or I expected that to be left to me. And I think this is wrong. And you're cheating me. And it just gets crazy, ugly, crazy fast. And what's unique in this above all else is that oftentimes at the core what the person is feeling, why they're mad at their family is because they honestly think this is unjust. It's not just, I want stuff or that item I thought was going to be mine. There's a true sense of there is not justice in play here. This is unjust. This is unfair. This is morally wrong and they should do things right. That's the feeling I've experienced and the, the response I've engaged with as people go through this. And it seems with this young man here, it's the same kind of thing. He's not coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, there's a circumstance in my family. There's this inheritance. We're debating it. Jesus, what should I do? That's not what he says. He says, Jesus, I know what you should go do. You should go and confront my brother. I've already got the plan, dude. You just have to be the messenger. I've got the message. You go tell my brother to do what I want, give me what I want, and give it to me now. So that's how clean this is in the mind of this person that's asking Jesus to intervene. So in verse 14, Jesus replied. He says, man, 
Who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? And here's what's cool. In the original Greek language that the Gospel of Luke is written in, that word man is a slight twist, and it gives us a sense of the tone. And so the tone Jesus has is not like, man, let me talk to you. He's more like, man, what are you doing? Give me a break, bro. Are you kidding? I'm I'm not here. I didn't come into the world to play the role of arbitrator to get brothers to cooperate and who gets what out of the family farm. He's like, that's crazy. In fact, even that word judge throws back to Exodus chapter two, where Moses was to play the role of arbitrator to two people fighting about money. And so Jesus's overall point here is like, come on, man, I'm telling you, I did not come to just play a new Moses as a new judge to make sure you got the money you want. He's like, no, I've actually come to kind of replace the vision of Moses with a greater vision for the world. I've come to bring true flourishing to the nations. I've come to bring blessing to the world, not just simply squabble about money. And so this whole game that you're playing misses the point of what my real ministry and mission is. Come on, man, I'm not going to play your game. I'm not going to get involved in such kinds of things. At the same time, what I do think is interesting is that for this flourishing that Jesus is bringing into the world, for it to take hold, means there has to be some relearning about things. There has to be some recalibration about the problems of our world. And this problem here that comes up with this young man does highlight one of the problems of our world. And that problem has to do with the fact that much of life is robbed of abundant life because we keep trying to get rich, full life out of things that are ill-equipped to actually provide that. They can't provide authentic, robust life. And one of life's robbers that masquerades as one of life's sort of enrichers is the robber of riches. We get pulled into this trap that says money will make me happy. Financial security will make me happy. Prosperity will make me happy. And if we all have it, we'll all be happy. And then we kind of get sucked into the vortex of this. And we think it's money that makes for the good life. It is savings that makes me feel safe and secure. And so Jesus is sort of confronting all of that. In fact, he warns in verse 15, He says, beware, guard against every kind of greed. See, while this young man thinks the problem is a justice problem and his brother's just being unjust, Jesus probes deeper and probably sees in the heart of the man something the man does not see in himself. He sees the heart of greed. At the core of this is not justice. It's just good old-fashioned want. I want and I'm not giving and I'm mad. And so because of this greed, Jesus says, beware. And this is not a casual word, right? Beware is aggressive. It's assertive, right? It's this demanding word. We put it on signs like beware of dog. Why? Because the dog will chew off your face. Beware of high voltage. Why? Because you'll become a lightning storm if you touch it. Like beware is this super strong word that gets your attention instantly and says, you better watch out because this is truly destructive. I think just that message right there is something for us to to take home, right? That Jesus is saying, when it comes to money, don't be casual, right? You better really be aware, beware of the risk involved in currency, Now, I think this raises some probing questions for us as red-blooded, capitalistic, free-market American Christians. I mean, I really do think it raises serious questions. For example, 
do we guard ourselves against every kind of greed? Like, do we guard ourselves? And, and if you said, well, I guard myself, what are your tools, right? Like, I would love for you to share those, even in the comments section on YouTube or Facebook, share, here's the tools I use to guard myself against greed. Because I think oftentimes we all say, I'm not greedy. Like, I've never met a person that says they're greedy, right? We all assume the next guy with more, the next girl with more, they're the greedy ones. I'm not greedy. So how would we guard ourselves against something that is so easily deceptive in our lives, right? How would we do that, right? Do we beware of the risk? Because I see as Christians, there's plenty of things that we say beware of. We say beware of the atheists and beware of the hedonists and beware of the moral relativists and the pluralists. There's all sorts of bewares we plaster in our world, but... How often do we remind or warn each other, beware of prosperity? Like, how often does that come up? Or, or maybe this, beware of a thriving economy. Because when the economy gets good, we tend to forget God things sometimes. How often do we remind each other to beware of making securities and savings our security and our savior? Like, how often do we say beware? How often do we say beware of being fearful when the economy starts to go down or under or fail? Do we offer those bewares to one another? Do we say beware of the American dream because it can become a spiritual and emotional nightmare when things fall apart? Do we say beware of the God that seeks to supplant our God? Because Jesus talks about that. He says the greatest conflict in all the world really comes down to two rivaling masters. It's mammon or money, and it's God. And so Jesus is constantly trying to warn us of this. And I want to be clear for a minute. It's not so much that money is the villain, right? That's not, it's, a, it's a tool, it's an object, it's a thing. It's just a, a, a unit of measure to purchase and give and sell and all that stuff, right? So money's not the problem, but it's our heart as it relates to it, our attitude with it, our fears that are connected to it, our faith that is embedded with it. Like when we start to see it as it matters in my life to produce what I most want and most need, that begins to expose the problem. And this is why Jesus is saying, beware, be on guard, take care, realize greed is always looking to embed itself in your life in a covert and kind of um, like stealth fashion to where you don't really think you are, right? This is always going to be the thing that we have to wrestle with. In fact, God warns of this, especially when you're doing well, when there is prosperity in your environment, God warns that that's where the dangerous time occurs. And he warns this in the book of Deuteronomy chapter eight. And so his people are leaving Egypt. They're going back to their homeland. And just as they're getting ready to enter, God begins to say, hey, here's what you're coming into. There's some really good stuff in there, but there's some real danger that may await you. So going back into Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse six, it says this. It says, so obey the commands of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a land of flowing streams and pools of water with fountains and springs that gush out of the valleys and the hills. 
It is a land of wheat and barley, of grapevines and fig trees and pomegranates, of olive oil and honey. It is a land where food is plentiful and nothing is lacking. It is a land where the iron is as common as the stone and the copper is abundant in the hills. And so it is just replete with natural resource. Everything you would need for a a thriving society is there. And so he says in verse 10, when you have eaten your fill, be sure to praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Those key words, those four things are really important in how we understand life, the economy, and the world we live in. When you're rich, you're plentiful, you have it all, don't forget to praise the Lord your God because he has given this to you, right? All of it is from his hand into your life. So the good times, the good economy, good life, all of that, man, that's from God. And so God says this, and then he says, in those good times of prosperity, verse 11, that is the time to be careful. Literally, be aware, right? He says, beware, then in your plenty, you do not forget the Lord your God and disobey his commands. For when you've become full and prosperous and built fine homes to live in, and when your flocks and your herds have become very large and your silver and your gold have multiplied along with everything else, be careful. Do not become proud at the time, that time and forget the Lord your God who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. Do not forget that he led you through the great and terrifying wilderness and its poisonous snakes, snakes and scorpions where it was so hot and dry and from that he gave you water from the rock. He fed you with manna in the wilderness of food unknown to your ancestors and he did this to humble you and to test you for your good. He did all of this so you would never say to yourself, I've achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy. Remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you the power to be successful. But I assure you, right? If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods, worshiping and bowing down to them, you will certainly be destroyed. So God's like, man, I've given you everything to flourish. But your flourishing, your success, your affluence, it all comes from me. And the day you think, I built it, I made it, I earned it, I achieved it. He says, man, you're in dangerous space. And then the day you start doing that, and then you start worshiping the other gods, the God of money, the God of wealth, the God of success, the God of strength, whatever it is. He says, then you're really risking destruction. And see, this destruction is the opposite of the flourishing. It's the decay. And this decay or destruction, it doesn't always come all at once. It didn't come to Israel all at once. It's this slow, methodical decay where you begin to lose true joy, true flourishing, true peace, true contentment. You begin to lose relationships for the sake of money, for the sake of success, or the sake of wealth. You you have this growing need for prosperity at the cost of community. Like all of that is the decay. And as this decay begins to prevail, the flourishing just begins to evaporate. And it's like this slow kind of meandering road to death. And what's most insidious about this whole thing, right? This idea that we think we've earned it, we produced it, it's ours. This thing where we put our faith in our economy and we put our fears in a broken economy, like that whole mess The problem that's most insidious in that is it's like this road to death 
But all the while as we're driving down the road, we're passing signs that says, this way to the good life. This is what you've earned. This is what you deserve. This is yours. This is your moment, your time to enjoy your life in your way. Like that's the road we go down and yet it's a road of decay and it's a road of death. This is why Jesus warns, beware, guard against every kind of greed. And he says this, because life is not measured by how much you own. I want to say that again. Life is not measured by how much you own. Now, again, in the Greek language, there are three words for life. Bios, psyche, and zoe. Right? So these are going to be pretty easy to remember. Bios, psyche, and zoe. Bios is very simple to understand because it's about duration or accomplishment or assets. So it's about how long you lived, how much you earned, what things you have. It is your biographical life. That's where we get the word biography from is bios. So it's just duration or stuff, amount, what you have in this life. Then you have psyche. And this is all about your identity and your personal sense of personality, your individual personality. And so this is your psychological life. Who you are and, and, and how you feel, that's your psychology, right? And you understand that. But Zoe is different. It's about the fullest expression of life. It's all of life kind of rolled into one. It's where we get zoology and zoo from. So the full spectrum of life is Zoe. But when you read the New Testament, this word Zoe is particular to the writers of the Bible. And that it talks about this idea of true deep life that flows from the creator of life. It's the life of God laid in the soul of people. It's God's self-expression then expressed in your life in such a way that it gives you a quality of life greater than anything else in life could give to you. So it's that abundant life in John chapter 10. Or it's the contented life of Philippians chapter four. It's the eternal life of Luke chapter 18. Or it's the divine life that is literally laid in you according to John chapter one or second Peter chapter one. So when we read Zoe, it is this whole different idea of life that says it's a life that is not dependent on good circumstances or good conditions. It is a life that almost says, you know what? I am transcendent of those things because it's the life of God coursing in our lives. That's Zoe. Of the three words that Jesus could use here for life is not measured, well, he doesn't use bios and he doesn't use psyche. He uses Zoe. And there's a reason. You can measure the bios life. Your biographical life could be measured. You lived this long, you made this much money, you left this much stuff for people to deal with after you die. Like, that's bios. And you can measure psyche. Right? We can measure your emotional state and as it rose or fell based on conditions and that's how most people live their life. They're hoping for good conditions to boost their psyche and then when bad conditions come, it drops their psyche and they struggle. But Jesus here uses Zoe, a life transcendent, a life that is lived in the strength of God's life in us. He says, that's where real life consists. It doesn't consist in things. It doesn't consist in conditions. It doesn't consist in things being right for you all the time. No, if you want to chase those things, that's fine, but it leads to dead ends. The real life is found in this thing of of trusting God, knowing God, walking with God, where it's not dependent on stuff, situation, circumstance, or security, right? That's what he's getting at. That's the point he wants to drive home. And so from this, he begins to tell a story. And the story begins in verse 16. He says, there was this man, a rich man, and he had a fertile farm and that produced fine crops. 
Now, you may not notice right from the get-go of the story, but this is reminiscent of that passage in Deuteronomy 8. Just if you have your Bible or you have the notes in front of you, I want you to look closely at verse 16 to see something here. There is a rich man who had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. Did the man produce fine crops? No, the farm produced it. Did the man do things that made the soil uniquely good for the conditions that he had? No, the whole purpose that Jesus sets up in the story is this guy isn't some alchemist at a due season that it's figured out how to take bad soil and make a good soil. His point is by way of chance, luck, grace, blessing, hand-me-down, whatever, this guy's ended up with good dirt. And because he's got good dirt, he's had good crops, and he's therefore got a good sum of money. But the thing is, this dude is not the success of his business. He is not a self-made man, right? That's the whole introduction that Jesus is trying to set up here. In other words, all his good dirt is on loan from God. That's it. His good dirt is on loan from God. But it seems that this guy is going to get into that trap that says, well, but I've earned my success, I've built my company. I've done this with my own two hands. And Jesus is like, dude, you don't understand that all of your success is built on the king's soil. Every bit of it is built on the king's soil. Now, this doesn't mean that this man can't spend some of that, save some of that, give some of that, enjoy some of that. We see in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that you can have wealth and enjoy it in a godly way. That's totally possible. But you never want to forget that every ounce of wealth, success, flexibility that you and I have, every bit of that is built on God's periodic table of elements, i.e. his dirt. It's all his dirt. And we just have this responsibility to be managers of what comes from God's good earth, to be responsible with it, but to not love it too much, follow it too much, worship it. None of those things should happen, but rather we should steward it well, knowing that it's all given by God. Well, this man thinks his success is his own. And so from this, he thinks he's built his farm. And so he sings a ballad to his brilliance. And as he sings his ballad, he uses his favorite vowel, I, and the rule that I comes before M and Y. Here's what he says. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all of my crops. I follows before M and Y. Then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones still. And I'll have room enough to store all of my wheat and the goods that I've created. And then I will sit back and I will say to myself, my friend, you have stored away years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. See, right here you see this man man, he has tons of retirement that is accrued. But when you also look closely, you see that his network has diminished. So in essence, he's got all of this surplus of assets, but he has a deficit of acquaintances. He's saying it to himself. Like he's got no friends, no wife, no kids around him. He's just like sitting in this big house with all this stuff going, man, I am awesome. I keep hurting my arm trying to pat my back. I'm so great. Like that's the state he's found himself in. And so he's had bios pursuits to settle his inner psyche, but at the cost of true Zoe life. He's missed out in the pursuits. And while he might have great financial savvy, what we're seeing here is that it's produced an investment fool. 
And that's literally what Jesus says. He says, but God will say to the man, you fool, your life will be required from you this very night. Then who will get everything you have worked for? I mean, this echoes Ecclesiastes to me. You work hard your own life, you mash, you accrue, you have, you die, and you leave it to your crazy uncle Eddie who just blows it all on beer. And you're like, why did that happen? It's like, that's kind of the idea here. And when Jesus says that God calls the man a fool, that's no small thing. Fool in the Old Testament is a pretty strong word. The question becomes, well, how is he a fool? Well, I can tell you he's not a fool because of his ingenuity or economics. I mean, he was successful from a financial point of view. And he wasn't a fool according to his morality or his dishonesty because it never says that he was dishonest in how he made his money or he was ripping people off with scales at the marketplace. It doesn't say that. He certainly wasn't a fool with his laziness or procrastination, which was common in the Old Testament. This guy worked really hard. In fact, I want you to think about this for just a minute. Honestly, if this was a modern story, we would all be celebrating this man fulfilling the American dream. This guy that is the true success story, the the guy that is the person where you go like, man, this is a self-made person. We would read his book. We would watch his TED talk. We would want Mike Rowe to go out to his farm and do a whole dirty jobs because here's this blue collar farmer that became this agricultural mogul over the course of his life. We honestly would say, this guy is the guy. He should come teach our economics class. He should be doing this for us. And yet Jesus says, "Ah." but this guy's heart, his deep inner working is broken. His work, his investment, his wealth was really his folly. Now, again, I want to be clear. I am not saying wealth is sin. Jesus is not saying wealth is sin. What he is saying is that this man put more time, energy, heart, and passion into his earthly investments than into eternal investments. He cared more about the here and now. He was more passionate about the here and now. He worried more about the here and now than he did about God's work and what God would define as success. And in this, he thinks he has been successful for what he has accomplished and he's missed it all. So he was living his best life, but he wasn't living life at its best. He was focused on the bios and the psyche, but not the zoe. And so Jesus gives the moral of the story in verse 21. He says, yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not to have a rich relationship with God. See, this man's mistake, like so many of us, the mistake, again, it's, it's, it's not so much in working or saving or investing. It's not in the opportunities, the wealth and the possessing. That's not the problem. The problem is when it possesses you. The problem is when you think you are the captain of your destiny and you've earned it and it's yours and you forget God in the process or God is just second or third or fifth, but you're first or your wealth is first. Jesus says, that's where it's a problem. When you're possessed by it, instead of you possessing it, everything falls apart. And so if we think, hey, no, I've done this, or our fear and faith is wrapped up in whether we have or don't have this, that's where we're in bad space, right? That's when we get into that risky location where Jesus says, you know what? You need to change your priorities. You don't want to be rich in this world and be poor toward God. No, you want to be rich toward God, whether you're rich or poor in this world. We should be more focused on how we succeed in our growth faithfully than how we succeed in our money fiscally. Like that's the place we want to be. 
We want to be rich toward God, not simply rich by way of the world. And so it's not about our biographical quantity, and it's not about our psychological quality, but it's about this quintessential focus of life with God laid in our soul, a relationship with God that shapes everything else, where our faith and fear are in God. Our faith and fear are not in our politicians or economic policies or in our tax base or status. Like those things will always falter and fall apart. This world is a fickle place. And we often set up the idols on the high places of economics, prosperity, economy, free market, capitalism, whatever. And God's like, man, don't you realize those things can fall apart? And if you get wrapped up in that, destruction comes behind. So Jesus says, do yourself a favor, right? Let God shape your eternal perspectives. Let God motivate your generosity. Let God really be the driver and sustainer of your faith and your fear. Enjoy the little things as much as you enjoy the big things. Find your prosperity, find your peace, find your purpose, not in the stuff of this life, but in the life that God seeks to live in you. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you that you love us enough to confront our idols. I thank you that you love me enough to confront the idols that I hold when it comes to finances and money. How even as I look at this building and, and how much we have to raise and I think about this last year going, oh, but the economy's in this place and COVID that and how is this gonna happen? And then I start to have fears about whether the building will get built and whether the money will be there. And before I know it, I am worshiping in fear or in faith money instead of you who provides all things and owns cattle on a thousand hills. Like, like I just forget you in your name even. It's so easy to do. And so I thank you that you confront us, that you love us enough to confront us to say, don't get sucked into the trap. Don't worship the idols, even the idols in the name of God. Like that's the easiest thing to do. We can worship idols in your name and we don't even know it. And so Jesus, help us to guard ourselves. Help us to be where and help us to be rich, not toward the stuff of the world, but rich toward you. We thank you and praise you in your name. Amen.